great to be back here preaching at, uh, at Lakes. After, after 13 years of, uh, of being given the privilege, I guess, of, of studying the Word of God through the week and then sharing that with you, it's been really nice to be back kind of doing that this past week. So thank you for this opportunity. If you've been here over the last couple of Sundays, you'll be aware that Mike has started a, a series of messages on prayer, which is a great way to start the year, it really is. And he's asked me to speak to you this morning from James chapter 5 and very specifically the, the notion of petitionary prayer. So on that note, note, let me pray a petitionary prayer now for all of us. Let's pray. Lord God, I just ask that as we set aside these moments now, that as we just stop what we could be doing in our week and we've come here and we've decided to focus on you and to worship you. And now, Lord, as we sit under your word, I pray, Lord, that my words would indeed be your words and that I would speak truth. But more importantly, Lord, that your spirit would sit somewhere between my words and our ears and that you would be ministering into us individually through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A petition is very simply a request for something to be done. So when we offer a prayer or petition, we're asking that God would do something that we would like him to do for us. Lord, would you do this or that? Because we think it would be a good idea for you to do this or that. We can't do it. We can't make it happen. Only you can make it happen. So could you please do it for us? Now the prayer of petition is a, it's a very interesting action when you start to think about it because frankly, God is God. And God is going to do whatever he is going to do. Is he not? God is good and therefore whatever he does is good. So why shouldn't we just be quiet, mind our own business and let God get on with being God? I mean, surely if we're involved, I mean, anything we want to happen is going to be tainted by sin and selfishness and and ego and pride and, well, isn't it just better for us to stay out of it? But that is not how God would have it. You see, God loves us so much and he has chosen to exalt those who have their life hidden in him so highly above all of creation, that he has given each of us a faculty of truly immense power. I'm speaking about your will. Your will. That part of you which is is truly you. That part of you which truly represents the core of your your desire, that part of you which truly is your only independent creative input into the cosmos. It is very significant 
your will. It really is. I mean, nearly everything else is beyond your control. You can deceive yourself into thinking that you have a lot of control over your life. But really, we have very little control over anything in our lives. You know, I've said to you many times before that we're only a doctor's visit, aren't we? We're only a doctor's visit away from some huge health issue that might just come upon us or, 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 or you know, you lose your job or, or something happens to one of your family members. I mean, we can think we have a lot of control, but really we don't. We really don't. It all comes by the grace and the will of God. But not so with our personal will. What we desire, what we will, is truly ours. It is a profound gift from God. This ability of our mind to think about the future in such a way that we desire something to be. I mean, if you look around you in this room, absolutely everything in this room is the result of a human being's will. Someone willed to make a chair. Someone, quite a long time ago, willed to learn how to join metal to metal by welding it. Someone else willed to create fabric. And somebody else thought about, they willed to dye that fabric a certain colour. And somebody else willed to create a chair by combining all of those elements together and then they decided it would be a good idea to sell it. So they created marketing material and then we decided we needed new chairs. So we went looking and we happened to look on the internet and we spotted that marketing material and then we went to buy those chairs and then we corporately decided we would raise the money to buy those chairs. And so we did that. And then someone decided when we bought those chairs where they would sit within the confines of this room and then this morning you used your God-given faculty, your will, to decide on which chair you would sit. And of all the chairs in this particular room, you decided by your will that you would sit on that particular chair. Everything in this room came about by human willpower. Friends, chairs do not grow on trees. Nothing does. Nothing in this room. In God's good creation, in God's cosmos, by God's design, your personal will is a very big deal. Probably more than you realise. I mean, ultimately, your eternal fate will rest on your will. Each of us will be judged by what we willed. Did we respond to his call or not? What did we desire? What did we will in all of the thousands upon thousands of little moments of decision throughout your life? God has given you a choice. He has given you willpower. You know what? God loves you so much that he has given you the power to do that which you ought to do. God has given you the power 
to turn your back on him. To walk away from the God of the universe. To not worship him. He's given you the willpower to not obey him. Even though that is the only right and proper response to the living God. You know, I find it fascinating to think through the implications of Jesus' will and the way he exercised his will. Jesus is, he is God. He is the Son of God. He is the Word of God. And it is through him all creation was made. That's what the Bible tells us. His will brought into being the entire created order. Do you get that? Everything was his idea. Everything was his idea. He is the author of life. And he is the one who became human. He became a man and he's still a man at the Father's side. He doesn't take off his humanity. He's the firstborn of the new creation as we will be. He became a man and it was as a man as he exercised his human will that we come to arguably the most significant moment in all of history. That moment when Jesus, the God-man, prayed desperately, oh Lord, take this away, but not my will. Just think about that. His will is the one who created everything. (laughs) Not my will, but your will. He lays down his will for us. I mean, it's truly an extraordinary thing to think about. So when we think about prayers of petition, when we pray and we ask that God would do this or that on our behalf, it's good to know that as we do that, we are actually keying into a fundamental principle of the kingdom of God. That what you will that what you will, what you want to be, really matters. And it really matters to God. And in saying that, I want to establish another important principle. God is under absolutely no obligation at all to do what you will. So you need to hold both of those in tension. Your will matters more to God than you probably realise, but his will is immeasurably more important. However, God does seem to give us what we want, even if it's against his better judgement. I would say to you, be very, very careful what you continue to ask God for. He may well just give it to you. And with that, the consequences. Now we could talk a lot more about that, but not now. Instead, I want to ask you this question. Can we change the mind of God 
Can we change the mind of God? Can we persuade God to do something that he has willed when, we, when he has willed to do something else? Can we change the mind of God? Well, as we think about this, probably the most striking passage of Scripture which comes to mind with regard to this issue is found in the book of Exodus, Exodus 32. Here we find that, that God has delivered his people out of 450 years of slavery in Egypt. Okay? And by his mighty right hand, he smote the Egyptians, bringing plague upon plague upon them until the Egyptians begged the children of Israel, please, leave the country. And here, take all our gold as well. Just go. So they get out of Egypt. And you know the story, don't you? Within a a very short time, Pharaoh says, what was I thinking? Gather the troops. And they go racing after the people of Israel. They get to the Red Sea and it seems like all hope is lost. But God parts the Red Sea for them. They go through on dry land. The Egyptian army follows. The sea comes back over and the Egyptian army is wiped out. So that's kind of the context. Moses has gathered these people And he said to them, be very careful. I'm going up that mountain. That is a holy mountain. Don't you go near that mountain. We've set up rocks. Don't go past those rocks. I'm going up there to meet with God. You stay down here and think good thoughts. So Moses goes up the mountain to meet with God to find out what are we going to do next. They go up the mountain and did they think good thoughts? No. In fact... It didn't take long before they started to think, gee, Moses is taking a long time up there. I know what we'll do. We'll get all the gold that the Egyptians gave us and we'll melt it down and we'll make a golden calf. And then we'll bow down and we'll worship that calf and we will all declare that that golden calf is the God who got us out of Egypt. And they all went, yeah! Good idea. So let's see what happened. Exodus 32, verse 7 says, The Lord told Moses, Quick, go down the mountain. And just take note of this. God says, Your people, Moses, your people whom you brought from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. How quickly they have turned away from the way I commanded them to live. They have melted down gold and made a calf and they have bowed down and sacrificed to it. They are saying, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Then the Lord said, I have seen how stubborn and rebellious these people are. Now leave me alone so that my fierce anger can blaze against them and I will destroy them. Then I will make you, Moses, into a great nation. I love this little window into the relationship between God and Moses. Now, God is not some force. I mean, he is the force behind all other forces, but he's not some force. He chooses to relate to us as a person to a person, doesn't he? And you can can see that in here. I love the way he says to Moses. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? He blames Moses. He says, these are your people who you brought out of Egypt. You can imagine Moses there going, what? I didn't even want to go. (laughs) I said I couldn't speak. 
What? These are your people. Anyway, Moses says, God says to Moses, now you leave me alone while I go and commit genocide. I'm going to wipe them out. But Moses, verse 11, tried to pacify the Lord, saying to his God, O Lord, he said, and then he corrects God, why are you so angry with your own people whom you brought from the land of Egypt with such a great power and such a strong hand? Why let the Egyptians say their God rescued them with the evil intention of slaughtering them in the mountains and wiping them from the face of the earth? Turn away your fierce anger. Change your mind about this terrible disaster you have threatened against your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. You bound yourself with an oath to them saying, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars of heaven and I will give them all of this land that I have promised to your descendants and they will possess it forever. So the Lord changed his mind about the terrible disaster he had threatened to bring on his people. So the Lord changed his mind. I mean, it would seem as though God is more than happy to have his mind changed in accordance with our will. And of course, this is exactly what we should expect from one who chooses to interact with human beings in a personal relationship. So make a little note at this point. Number one, your will is very significant and probably more significant than you realise. It's a gift God has given you and he wants you to exercise it. In fact, I suspect that God's delights in seeing his children exercise their will well. Just like we would. I found that very, very renewing. I found it wonderful to see my children grow up and make choices that are very much in line with the way I would want them to behave. I just find that wonderful. And is it not so with God that he would delight when we use our will well? Number two, God's will trumps your will. Always. Okay? We've got to let that one settle there. Number three, God's will can be changed in the context of our relationship with him. Okay? James plainly tells us, this is chapter 5, verse 17, says the earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Just let the truth of those words sink in for a moment. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Now our words have no power on their own. We don't cast spells with our words. Is anyone here a Harry Potter fan? Who can do their best Harry Potter impersonation of 
casting a, casting a, a spell. Come on, someone just stand. So, sorry, do that again. No, you need to stand. Stand. <laughs> yeah, okay. When we pray, when we pray, it's not that. Okay? Many years ago, I was with an, an unwell person in the kitchen and a dear brother said, in Jesus' name, be healed. Well, that sounds like a spell. And then, without warning, he said, be healed! <laughs> like, they weren't healed. Okay? And if you think that just saying, in Jesus' name, guarantees that God will do it, you're dreaming. Okay? You're dreaming. When we ask God to do something, we're not casting a Harry Potter spell. We're not. You just think about it. I don't have, my words don't have power to do that. Only God can make things happen. So when we talk about producing wonderful results with our prayerful words, what we're talking about is convincing God to act, aren't we? We're actually convincing God, please do this. We're asking this, if anything, when we say in Jesus' name, it's to say, we're in Christ. We're in Christ and we believe that this is something that would be in line with the way Jesus would want it to be. Lord, would you please act on our behalf? It would seem that the more we allow the Holy Spirit to shape us and have control over our life, the more righteous our life becomes and then the more effective our prayers of petition will be. Which kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Because the more you walk with Jesus, the more your will is going to line up with his will. Anyway. But of course the very opposite is true when we live unrighteously. Have a look at what it says in Proverbs 28. It says, If anyone turns a deaf ear to the Lord... Even his prayers are detestable. See, when you ignore the law, when you ignore the teachings of Holy Scripture, when they just become irrelevant and unimportant to you, forget about petitioning God. Your words have become detestable to God. It always comes about through our relationship with him. But of course this raises another question, doesn't it? Does this mean that whenever our prayers are not answered, when God does not do something we've asked him to do, is that because we have sinned? Is it because we've ignored the law of God? Is it because we've angered God in some way? You know, when I was growing up, a family that was very, very dear to, to me, very close to this family. Mum in the family developed a brain tumour and she became gravely ill very rapidly. And in fact, she passed away within only a few months. And during that time, the pastor of the church, and he meant well, I'm sure, but he gathered the family together and he said to her four children and her husband, 
there is sin hidden in this family and that's why your mum's sick. Now, I can only begin to try to understand how that made those children feel. I mean, it's just cruel, isn't it? Did their mother die because God was angry with them? My suspicion is that she did not. I mean, one cannot think deeply about these issues without becoming very much tied up in knots. I mean, it seems to me that this issue of the apparent conflict between the value and the power of human will and petitionary prayer and God's sovereignty and his will and what he actually does with us comes to its most confounding apex when we think about healing and what happens or does not happen when we pray for someone who is sick. When Mike rang me and asked me if I would preach, I said to him, so is there a passage you'd like me to preach from? I'm doing a series or something? And we talked about it and he says, oh yes, I'd like you to speak from James 5, 14. I must confess, when he said that, I did think to myself, great, that's going to be easy. Not. (laughs) So let's have a look at James 5 together. James 5.14 says, Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. That's a hard passage to take seriously, isn't it? That's one of those passages of scripture that I I really don't want to have to think too much about. Why? Because it doesn't seem to work. It just doesn't seem to be true. I mean, frankly, it seems like a load of rubbish. I have been an elder, a pastor. I've had people call me to come and pray over them. I have anointed them with oil in the name of the Lord Jesus and with all my heart I have tried to have the faith required so that the sick person may be made well in line with scripture. Some, a very few, got better. Some, probably most, did not get better. A number, in fact, died. They died, they passed away from the very illness that I was praying that God would heal them of and he did not heal them, it would seem. So what do we do with this passage of scripture? I mean, it seems to be very clear, doesn't it? It really does. It seems to be very clear. And it would seem to be a prescription for good health. I mean, why would you bother going to a doctor? Why wouldn't you just have 
you know, a group of elders in your phone and whenever you start to feel a bit down, you ring an elder, they come, anoint you with oil, pray for you and you shazam, you're fixed. You'll never be sick again. Let me say a few things about this passage. Firstly, it's kind of interesting to note this is the only this is the only verse in the pastoral epistles that is the pastoral letters that speaks about healing like this all the other times where we hear about healing is in the life of Jesus as covered in the gospels or by the apostles in acts which has led many of our brothers and sisters to come to the conclusion that God does not heal miraculously now and that the gift of healing was very squarely placed in the time of Jesus and the apostles. I'm not quite in that camp. I think God definitely does still move miraculously today. I've seen it. I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen in my own life. And I certainly believe in the gifts of the Spirit, including the gift of healing. Secondly, let me point out that at this point, the NIV translation, which we have up there, in my opinion, is maybe not as accurate as it could be. Okay, in the NIV translation, verse 15, this is when you need to blank out what you're thinking about, lunch, etc., and concentrate. Verse 15 says, And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. That's not actually what the Greek says. You know, the original Greek that James wrote. Okay. In the original Greek, it does not say that the sick or weak person will be made well. It actually says that the sick or weak person will be saved or delivered. Now that is a much broader outcome. Indeed it could well be argued therefore that the best outcome for the sick person would be that their flesh and blood body did actually die because then they would be truly saved and delivered from all of their ills. So these few words are a bit, a bit of a one-off which in scripture you've always got to be a bit careful about that. Okay. Their translation is somewhat difficult and on top of that, the whole letter of James is not written into a specific situation. You see, when Paul writes Corinthians, he's writing directly into a situation and we can, we can understand his words because you can understand the situation. But when James writes his letter, he says in the first few verses, this is addressed to the Jewish believers scattered throughout the world, everywhere. And he just makes a whole lot of statements... You read the letter. Go home, read the letter. It'll only take you about 15 minutes. Read the whole letter and you think, wow, he covers a lot of ground. It's tremendous the amount of ground that he covers. He's speaking into a very broad situation and he's making one-off little statements. We've got to be very careful about taking one of those little statements and saying that applies everywhere. That's always going to be the way that it is. So how are we to understand prayers of petition and particularly prayers for those who are ill? 
Well, from a wider reading of Scripture, I think we can gain some understanding because the Bible speaks about illness in a number of ways. Firstly, in first century Palestine, illness was believed to be linked directly with sin. That's just how they, they thought. When they saw someone who was really ill, automatically they said, there's obviously something that's happened. Which is probably where that old pastor of mine got his ideas from. Okay? And we know this because of the way the disciples asked Jesus about the man who was born blind at birth. Okay? This is John 9, verse 2. As they walked along, he, Jesus, saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the work of God may be displayed in his life. So there is sickness. I want you to get this. There is sickness for God's glory. This man was blind from birth. Not because of sin, but simply for the glory of God. We have that straight from the mouth of Jesus. That's how Jesus explained it to his disciples. So the work of God might be displayed in his life. Some people... Some people in this room will become sick and they will be healed to the glory of God. Other people will become sick for God's glory and they will die, giving glory to God all the way. They will glorify God by the way they died and the way they dealt with their sickness. And as I look around, I can think of a number of people in our midst who died like that. They died giving glory to God and they gave glory by the way that they, <coughs> they, they died. <coughs> the second kind of sickness seen in the Bible is sickness for discipline. We see this in the plague suffered by the Egyptians who wouldn't allow God's people to go free. We see it in the way that God struck Miriam, leprous, when she spoke out against Moses. You can read that in, in Numbers chapter 12. You know, you've got, you got Moses and his, his brother and sister are speaking out against him and God calls the three of them together and rips into Miriam and Aaron and says, I speak face to face with your brother. Who are you to accuse him? And then the cloud of God's presence rises up and Miriam is white with leprosy. And of course Moses goes to God and says, Lord, please don't smote my sister. God says, okay, keep her outside the camp for seven days and then she'll be fine. Discipline. Sickness for discipline. We, in, in 1 Corinthians 11... We find Paul saying, a man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognising the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. And then look at this. This is why many people among you are weak and sick 
and a number of you have fallen asleep. Friends, don't take that time of communion lightly. Not time to be checking Facebook. This is serious. There is sickness or discipline. I mean, generally when God disciplines us, it is not strictly as punishment for sin, but rather as a way of guiding us back to the right path. And that certainly seems to be the case with Miriam. Jesus told us that God disciplines us as dearly loved children. The third kind of sickness we see in the Bible is sickness for death. Sickness for death. Put simply, God doesn't want us to live like this forever. He wants us with him in glory. He wants us set free completely. You know, I often wonder if we'll get to heaven and say, Lord, why did you leave me languishing here for so long? Why didn't you just take me home? This is wonderful. You know, if everyone was healed instantly as soon as we prayed for them, people would simply live on and on and on. But that is not how God would have it. God has ordained that some of us will die suddenly in a dramatic way. A car accident, a plane crash, a terrorist strike, a shark attack. Others will die quietly in their sleep. But most of us, most of us will get sick. Most of us will find that we get older and older and our body wears out, we will get sick, our friends and family will earnestly pray for our healing, but we will pass away because sin has messed up all of creation and things are not as they should be. But one thing we can hang on to is the truth that it is God who holds our days in his hand. We find in Job 14 these, these beautiful words. You have decided, Lord, the length of our lives, You know how many months we will live and we are not given a minute longer. I love that. God knows the moments of your life and you are not given a moment longer or presumably a moment less. Praise God. So we have sickness for the glory of God, sickness for discipline of sin, this sickness for death. Now what are we to do with this? How can we know when someone is ill whether it's one or the other? Let me just say to you, you can't always know. You can't. And that's okay. You can't always know. I mean sometimes you can look at a person's life and you can say, well you've made a whole lot of choices over many, many years that have led to this position we're in now. And I think probably your sickness now is a result of all of those choices. We can look honestly at someone or at ourselves and say, yep, that's what's happened. And we we need to treat people who are suffering in this way, not judgmentally, but with the compassion that comes from a a realisation and an acknowledgement of our own sinfulness. We must always keep grace before us. As someone once said there, but by the grace of God, go I. Many times, however, we simply can't know, but we do know what we should do about it. We should pray. We should pray for them. Jesus, it seems, spent much time alone in prayer. And we find him praying magnificently for us 
all of us who would follow him just before he is arrested and crucified. It's found in John 17. It is well worth, as you think about petitionary prayer, have a look at Jesus' prayer of petition for us just before his life on, on earth came to an end. You know, his, his life here was bathed in prayer and so should ours. And I want to challenge you today to be people who believe and act on God's will and God's word but know that your will is a God-given gift and he delights when we use our will well to honour and glorify him. And finally, I want to challenge you to be people who earnestly pray for the well-being of other people. So let's do that now. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this faculty, our will, that we seem to take for granted. Lord, as I look at all of creation, pretty much everything else just does what it does. There's just this kind of intuition that's there, but not so with us. We are given this mighty faculty, our will. Lord, I just pray we would use it well. And Lord, I pray that you would Stir in us the compassion as your spirit works in us to earnestly pray for others and that we would lay our will down as a holy sacrifice before you, always seeking what you would have us do, but acknowledging our own will and using that will to choose as Jesus did to do your will. We pray this in Jesus' name.